reed instruments like the clarinet and saxophone make sound thanks to a cane or wooden reed that is placed up against a mouthpiece, usually made of hard rubber or metal. The reed then vibrates, and that's where the sound comes from. However, double reed instruments like the oboe, the English horn, and the bassoon make sound with two reeds placed back to back. That's why they sound so very different. Woodwinds, man. It's a whole thing. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. My name is Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music made by single reeds and double reeds and triple and quadruple reeds. Here at Strong Songs, we believe you can never have too many reeds. We've got a very highly requested and very strong song for you this episode, so kick back, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. I've always thought that it's interesting how many different types of instruments are categorized as woodwinds. All of the instruments that I mentioned in that intro are woodwinds. Uh, The saxophone is a woodwind. The clarinet is a woodwind. The double reeds, like the oboe and the bassoon and the English horn are all woodwinds. Also, the flute is a woodwind, which you blow across a flute, you know, kind of like blowing across a Coke bottle or something to make a sound. So the flute doesn't have a reed at all, yet it's still a woodwind. Compared to brass instruments like the trumpet, trombone, euphonium, tuba, those all use a cup mouthpiece that you buzz into... You make that kind of a sound. Um, Sorry, I'm not much of a brass player. But they all kind of make their tone the same way. Woodwinds are so much more varied. And I think that's why woodwind instruments and woodwind sections tend to have, you know, such a more varied sound. And the brass has a kind of a unified, strong sound. Uh, It's a cool distinction between the two kinds of wind instruments that typically feature in wind ensembles and orchestras. And always something that I have valued, particularly being a woodwind player myself. Uh, This episode's song actually features a double read, an oboe solo. It's like one of the only major pop songs I can think of to feature an oboe solo, and we'll get to that in a minute. First, a couple of things up front. You all know the drill. You can support Strong Songs on Patreon, and I really value everyone who has done that. It's making it more and more possible for me to dedicate more and more time to this show. So if you're interested in helping me make this show, which is entirely listener-supported, I would really appreciate it if you would go check out patreon.com slash strongsongs. There are also many other ways that you can support this show. You can leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. Lots of people have done that. Not only is it nice to hear from people who like the show, but it helps the show surface more in searches, which I want. I have this feeling that if people just find out about the show, they'll probably like it. So the key is really just getting the word out. And to that end, the biggest thing you can do is just tell people you know about this show. Um, I'm constantly hearing from people who tell their friends about the show and who spread the word in some way or another, post it on social media. And that is a really, really helpful thing you can do. And it's uh, just cool. It means a lot. And it's nice to hear that people are telling their friends about it. I really really like to hear from listeners. You can feel free to email me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com or tweet at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. I'm totally open to feedback and song suggestions, recommendations, and requests. And actually, this song that we're about to talk about has been requested by a lot of people over the months, so hopefully those people will be excited. What song am I talking about? Well, hmm, let me play a little melody for you on the piano and see if it rings any bells. Anything? Is that bringing anything back for you? All right, let me let me add a little bit to it and see if this helps. Surely you got it by now. Uh, but if you don't, let's just let the man take it from here. That's right. It's time to talk about Seal's Kiss from a Rose. There used to be a gray and tower alone. You became the light on the dark side of me. For a variety of reasons, Seal's 1994 hit is still talked about as one of the greatest pop songs ever written. It's got an enduring quality that is unusual, and as a result, I figured it was long past time that Strong Songs picked it apart, looked inside, and found out what makes it tick. Ooh, the more I get, I feel 
<laughs> there is a lot to talk about with this song. This is one of those songs where I, and I think a lot of other people, can sing all of the lyrics despite the fact that they're kind of confusing and it's not clear what they mean. Everyone knows the words to this song. This song is always a huge hit at karaoke, though it is kind of hard to sing. I remember when I first saw the music video, it made me excited to see Batman Forever, a movie that I liked because I was a kid and not because it was a good movie. It's one of those songs that just has this certain connection, an emotional hold on people, especially people from a certain generation. And it already was interesting to me for that reason. But like a lot of the songs that I talk about on this show, once I got inside the recording, really learned the song, figured out what I was hearing, it's actually interesting in a lot of ways that I didn't see coming. And um, I've learned a lot more about it uh, since I started working on this episode. So I am excited to share all of that with you today. First up, Vital Stats, Kiss from a Rose, was written by Seal, a.k.a. Henry Olusigan Adiola Samuel. He is a London-based recording artist who put it on his Seal 2 album, his second self-titled album in 1994. The song, like the rest of the album, was produced by a guy named Trevor Horn, who Seal credits with giving it its distinct sound. It didn't make a huge impression until it was included on the soundtrack for Batman Forever, the famously strange and mediocre Batman movie that nonetheless featured a couple pretty good singles, single from U2 and a single from Seal that were both pretty big hits on the charts when that album was released in 1995, and that actually then led Seal to win a Grammy for Kiss from a Rose in 1996, two years after he initially released the song. So there are a couple of main themes I want to talk about when it comes to Kiss from a Rose. One of them is counterpoint and vocal layering, which is the way that um, Trevor Horn and Seal have sort of layered a whole bunch of vocal parts uh, into one another in a way that's kind of unusual. It's not really the traditional, you know, lead vocal with backup uh, vocals singing harmony underneath it, you know, that you hear in a lot of songs, it's much more of this like interweaving complex uh, network of vocal lines. Like I mentioned, there are times where I feel like the lead part, like the part that you sing, isn't quite actually the high part or the main part, if there even is a main part. It's actually a little bit similar to Toto's Africa in that way. And I wonder actually if some of that sonic similarity is is at the root of the similar appeal that the two songs have. But that's maybe a whole separate sonic theory of this song that I don't need to get into. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about is the vocal arrangement, the vocal counterpoint, all the different vocal lines. I'm going to pick out some of the cool ones and talk about them. Also just some of the cool notes in the melody that the vocals are, are highlighting. Some of the backup parts bring out these interesting color tones that sound really cool. So the other thing I want to talk about is phrasing because this song actually kind of has more interesting phrasing than I gave it credit for before I learned it. So we'll kind of break down what counterpoint and phrasing are and then kind of look at the song through that lens or, you know, those lenses. Um, before we do that, though, one interesting thing I want to point out about the song that I had no idea about is the original recording of Kiss from a Rose is not in standard tuning. It's actually sharp. It's like 33 cents sharp. So a third of a semitone sharp. And that means you can't actually just play along with it with, you know, a piano or a guitar that you have tuned to A440. It's interesting, this is something we just talked about in the most recent Q&A episode, and this is a total coincidence. Uh, this was in relation to Beatles songs, which were typically taken after they recorded them, and sometimes they would speed up the tape or slow down the tape to get a slightly different sound, just a little bit, you know, speed it up a tiny bit, so that if you try to play along with an in-tune instrument, you know, tuned to the A440 standard, uh, it wouldn't sound very good. And that's actually true of Kiss from a Rose, too. It's 33 cents sharp. Now, remember, sharp means higher and flat means lower. So it's 33 cents, which is a percentage of a semitone. It's, you know, a third of a semitone uh, higher than the note should be. It's in G, but it's in like a sharp version of G. It's not quite sharp enough to be in G sharp. It's just in like a not A440 tuned version of G. Uh, check it out. I'll play just a little bit of it um, on piano along with it uh, with a regularly tuned piano sound. Okay, here comes the piano. Oh man, that does that does not sound good, right? It sounds pretty bad. Fortunately, thanks to the marvels of modern music technology, I can just retune the piano that I'm using. I'm using a digital sampled piano, and I can just tune it 33 cents sharp. That was actually how I figured out exactly where it is. So I will be using a sharp piano to play along with the original recording, so you won't really notice it. But it is just kind of an interesting thing that posed a challenge for making this episode. It wasn't something I expected going in and only figured out when I sat down with the piano to learn the song. So I've got multiple pianos in this that you'll hopefully never know 
notice, some of which are in tune and some of which are not. And that's just a fun uh, trivia fact about Kiss from a Rose. So let's start at the very beginning with that iconic introduction, which sets the tone for the whole song. It establishes the big focus on counterpoint, on counter melodies weaving in and out of one another. It establishes some of the interesting instruments and instrumentation, the way that this song has been, you know, composed in this sort of faux Baroque style almost that gives it this kind of chamber music um, Renaissance fair feeling that I think made it kind of stand out and uh, really just sets the tone for the whole song. So there's a lot going on in that intro, and there's actually a lot going on in this song. I could get bogged down in like picking apart every single vocal harmony, and this episode could be two hours long. But I want to talk about some of them because they're really cool. So I might not be able to hit all of them, but we are going to kind of get into the weeds on some of these, especially on this intro. So to get at the other term that I want to talk about with this song, phrasing, um, you know, a phrase is kind of one melodic idea. You can think of it as a melodic sentence, kind of, or a musical sentence. It doesn't have to have a melody. Phrasing is one of the ways in which music most closely resembles language. It's a lot like sentences, you know, and how sentences form a paragraph, a series of phrases form, you know, a larger um, system of musical ideas. You can just think of it as, you know, that's one phrase. That's two phrases. So that's one phrase here. That's one melodic idea in this intro that happens four times. Another important piece of musical information to keep in mind as we talk about this song is that Kiss from a Rose is a waltz. It's actually in 3-4 time, which is a kind of less common time signature. It's the, probably the most common time signature after 4-4 time, which is literally so common that it's called common time. Musicians just can write a C on a piece of paper, and you know that means common because 4-4 time, four beats in a measure, is so common. Uh, this is a waltz. It's in 3-4. I guess you could count it in 6-8 as well. I'm going to count it in 3-4, and if you don't agree with me, well, I'm sorry. But uh, basically, this is in 3-4. So it's 1-2-3. This is nice, actually. I'm a little bit sick while I'm recording this. I've got some extra nice low notes that I can sing. Uh, so anyways, this song is in 3-4. So let's listen to that phrase one more time and kind of feel that 3-4 pulse, which goes through the whole rest of the song. Two, three, one, two. All right, so we got that established. Let's pick apart what's actually happening. The most obvious melody is this one. That could kind of be called the main motif for Kiss from a Rose, I would say. It's like kind of one of the defining melodies of this song. So that's the most present thing that's right there in the center. There are two other vocal tracks here. So Silo's multi-tracked himself, and he's only going to get more elaborate with the multi-tracking. But they start actually kind of fairly simple. Over in the right, he's singing a single note, this like da, 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 da. That's more of a kind of an accent. And then under the melody, he's singing a counter melody that's much lower, like a bass counter melody. So this is the first example of counterpoint in the song that you hear it, but you can kind of not hear it because your ear is more focusing on that main melody. So the right channel part, the little light notes that he's singing sounds like this. And then still in the center, but much lower, he comes in a little bit later with this lower bass counter melody that sounds like this. So when you put all three together, you get this. Okay, so listen back to that very first phrase, those first four bars of three, four time, and uh, listen for those three parts, right in the middle of that main melody, over on the right, the lighter kind of accent notes that he's singing, and then also in the center, but coming in a little bit later, the bass counter melody that's the first real counterpoint in the song that uh, runs counter to the main melody. Ba-da-da. 
Okay, so we've talked about what a phrase was. Let's just get into counterpoint really quickly. You probably kind of get what it is, but um, the way that I'm using it anyways, counterpoint has a rich, long uh, tradition. There's a lot of, you know, you could study years and years of counterpoint. I took some counterpoint classes in music school, but I'm no counterpoint expert. I'm using the term a little bit loosely, mainly to mean um, a melody that runs counter to a main melody, or really just two melodies that run in contrary motion to one another and sort of inform and weave in and out of one another. So there's a difference between that and just singing a harmony part. You know, there can be a time where someone sings a note like, yeah, and then someone else will sing, yeah, and then you put them together and you get, yeah, and that's like just two people singing in harmony. That's very different than what's going on here. You know, there's plenty of that happening on Kiss from a Rose, but also what's happening is there are these times where Seal will sing a whole separate melody that sort of fits into the spaces, you know, that are left by the first melody that he established, and you kind of have two different melodies going at once. That's less common, and that's kind of a big part of the sound of this song. Okay, so we're four measures into the song. This is going great. Um, Let's listen to the next four measures, which definitely make things more elaborate in terms of the vocal arrangement and the layering. There's more going on. Check it out. Okay, so some familiar voices in there. We have the main melody, of course, still right there in the center. Over on the right, those same accent notes. That's still happening. Uh, That counter melody that plays in the middle is still there. That plays underneath as well, though it's a little bit buried because there's a new bass part that's below that. Um, Yet another new harmony. And, of course, one more counter melody that's introduced. So there's a couple of new elements here that really richen things up. Okay, so that bass part first. This is now over on the left. We've got a bass part that is a little bit lower than the low part that was already in, which adds a third harmony on the bottom and kind of really thickens up the bottom of the sound. That line sounds like this. So that's a little bit subtle. It just sort of adds this bottom end. But the much more dramatic thing that they add is this ha sound that he, you know, he does this big breathy attack on it that adds, you know, this really lovely lush drama to the whole thing. And that really stands out in the mix and is sort of on top of everything else, adding a sort of a gloss that sounds like this. Okay, so if you've been counting, there are now five vocal parts active at the same time. Let's go through them real quick. There is main melody. First bass counter melody. Lower bass counter melody. Right channel, high accents. Descending dramatic melody. Okay, let's put those all together on piano. It'll sound a little bit weird because there's some overlap notes, and that's not quite how a piano works, but I'm using multiple piano tracks. So uh, let's do this. This is what it sounds like when you put all five of those parts together on the piano. See if you can really just, like, relax your ears and hear all of them at the same time. All right, I mean, you get the idea, but that doesn't quite sound right. I think we need to hear it on some actual wind instruments. Lovely. Like I always say, everything is better with a little bit of saxophone. Okay, then let's listen to Seal do it. Hopefully you're hearing a lot more there than you did the first time that you heard it. The only line that I really want to try to draw out uh, is that that first bass counter melody that's actually been in from the beginning. Because once all those voices are in, that's that inner voice that gets lost. And those inner voices, actually a lot like uh, with Toto's Africa, the inner voices tend to be where the coolest sounds are. And if you can really focus your ear on them, that's the richest stuff and the hardest stuff to hear. Because it's not the stuff that your ear is immediately drawn to. So listen one more time and I'm going to draw out that first bass counter counter melody that's kind of buried in there, but it's really adding a nice thickness to the sound. Now, I think that this sound is just really beautiful, and I think that it, people respond to it even if they're not picking out all five of those individual parts that are that are going at the same time. I think just the wideness and the richness and the variety, the way the lines are moving in different directions and doing different things, just adds a really lovely um, energy to the song. And I think that people just respond to that. You know, your ear responds to that sort of intuitively, even if you're not hearing every individual part. And that goes for the rest of this song, too. There's a whole lot of this stuff in the song. We're going to keep going. 
uh, through this intro. But like you'll see, I mean, I, I really couldn't do every single bit of counterpoint, every interesting counter melody in the song, or this would be a two-hour episode. Uh, so the broader point is just that this kind of arranging, this kind of intricate weaving of melodies is a very cool thing that actually not that many people do that well. Um, and not that many people have done since this recording, you know, 25 years ago, which is one of the reasons I think anyways that people still love this song and still listen to it. There's also just something innately beautiful about the sound of the human voice, and I think Seal also just has a really lovely voice, so it's just fun to listen to the human voice make nice sounds in harmony with itself. Um, which is interesting because the next phrase, we're now on to phrase three, and phrase three introduces some non-human voice sounds. Check it out. Mmm, love those double reeds. So just like I mentioned in the intro, that is an oboe over in the right channel, one of the most famous double reed instruments, maybe the most famous double reed instrument, and not the kind of solo instrument you really hear on very many pop songs or songs that are on the radio. This particular solo is played by an oboist named David Theodore. And I think that that sound, especially to hear a chamber instrument like the oboe playing this, you know, delicate counterpoint line mixed in with all of these, you know, graceful moving melodies, really adds to that kind of Renfair vibe that I was talking about that I think that this song captures really wonderfully that I really enjoy and makes it sound so distinct. Uh, meanwhile, over in the left channel, the piano has just come in playing very basic chords through this three chord chord progression, and that both of those things just add very different textures to what is in effect just a complete repeat of the first phrase. You know, uh, it's just those three lines the seal is singing, the same ones that from the very beginning, but by adding a piano playing the harmony, which really, you know, emphasizes the chords that, that are happening, obviously, and then over in the right, uh, having the oboe doubling that main melody, it, it creates a significantly different energy. And then for the fourth phrase, basically they just throw everything in the kitchen sink, all of it at it. Um, the new parts come in that came in on the second phrase, along with the oboe, along with the piano, and they're setting up the entrance of the full band. So here is the final phrase, the fourth phrase, that has everything. There's one more sound in there that you might have noticed, and that's what I think I'm just guessing. I think it's like a Celtic harp or something, and uh, it's a neat sound that adds yet again to the, the feeling that this is sort of a piece of music from a different period in history. All right, and that is every component part from the 16-bar intro to Seal's Kiss from a Rose. Um, I know that's a lot, but uh, I hopefully that'll kind of open your ears up to the kinds of things that are going on on this song in general, because all of those elements are, you know, they carry through the rest of the recording. There is a bunch of other stuff, and we'll highlight some, you know, some various things that I think are really cool. But that kind of gives you a, a recipe for how this song works, the way that it layers on top of itself, and the way that the, the arrangement kind of twists and turns in these really beautiful ways. So, with all of that in mind, Let's listen to that entire intro and just let your ear wander, you know, see what it fixes on, see what you're hearing, try to push it in different directions than you might normally go and see what you notice and see if you can just kind of piece the whole thing together while keeping a focus on the big picture. What a fantastic intro. Man, it just is very, very effective when the bass and the drums come in with that big, warm sound and Seal's lead vocal part comes in and it's really clear that, you know, he's front and center and singing. It's been set up so beautifully. It's a it's a really effective introduction that I think, you know, stands the test of time, still sounds great today. And you don't hear a lot of songs doing introductions like that. All right. So now the introduction is out of the way onto the verse. There are a few cool things in the verse that I want to highlight. Uh, one has to do with the groove. One has to do with phrasing and one has to do with the melody. And uh, actually, there's also one about the bass part. So, you know, basically everything, everything about the verse is cool. Um, let's listen to the verse first, and then we will go and address those things in order. There used to be a gray tower alone on the sea. You became the light on the dark side of me. Love remains a drug that's the high and 
know that when it snows, my eyes become alive and the light that you shine can't be seen. All right, so let's start with the groove. There's something neat with the groove here, and again, it's something that's actually missing from the groove during this verse that then comes in during the chorus. Uh, hopefully, longtime Strong Songs listeners have trained themselves to listen for the thump and the pop and the sizzle. If this is the first episode of Strong Songs you've ever listened to, though, which I have to assume some of you, it might be, um, first of all, welcome. I hope you like the show. Uh, secondly, there's a thing I talk about a lot, and it's a kind of a groove uh, taxonomy that I've come up with, and it's called thump, pop, sizzle. The idea is that that most grooves have some element of a thump, like a low, you know, thumping sound, some element of a pop that kind of pops and offsets the low thump, and some element of sizzle that is sort of a, a higher frequency thing that sits in between the thumps and the pops. So the most obvious version of this is the thump is the kick drum, and that, you know, provides the boom, boom, you know, that's the thump at the bottom of the groove. The pop is the snare drum, that's the pop that comes in and, and kind of offsets the thump and the sizzle is you know usually a symbol like the hi-hat um, and that's the that goes in between the thumps and the pops you know the sizzle could also be a shaker thump could be um, you know a person hitting a box or something like a cajon drum or something like that um, thumps could be you know I don't know in the case of we will rock you the thumps are people stomping their feet and the pops are people clapping their hands so a thump and a pop and a sizzle most grooves have some element of each of those and a, a creative thing that you can do is remove one element you know, maybe remove the thump, maybe remove the sizzle, maybe remove the pop, and that can create a different feel for a different section of a song. In this case, on the verse of Kiss from a Rose, they've almost completely removed pop. So you just have a thump, you've got a big warm kick drum, and you've got some hi-hat over in the right channel. There's a little tiny bit of cross stick on the snare that adds a little bit of pop, but basically there's no pop. And so you've got a much bigger and more open sound with just the low end and the sizzle tying things together, but no pop breaking things. Up. Love remains a drug that's high enough. So, of course, that groove doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists to set up a contrast to the chorus, which we'll get to. Don't worry, the pop does come in, and it comes in pretty fiercely. And the reason that it comes in so fiercely is because the verse sets up the contrast by removing it entirely. Okay, so the second thing that I like about the verse is the phrasing. And what's cool about this is that it actually has five-bar phrases, which is a little bit unusual. Now, a quick thing to note, I use the words bar and measure interchangeably. So a bar and a measure, basically the same thing. When I say bar, I mean measure. When I say measure, I might as well mean bar. If you remember, when we were talking about the intro, we were talking about four bar phrases, you know, sections of four measures a piece. We're in three, four time, so that's four sets of three beats, um, that's four measures. Now that's different from the verse, which has five bar phrases, which is unusual for a reason I'll explain in a minute, but let's start just by listening to it, and I will count along. And you're gonna hear that each phrase that he sings is five measures long. Here we go. One. Now, a four-measure phrase or, you know, multiples of four are very common in phrasing, especially in popular music, music you'll hear on the radio. It's a very common thing. We're just pretty used to hearing it. A lot of songs that you hear are derivations of four. You know, maybe eight-bar phrases, a 16-bar tune, a 12-bar blues, that's three sets of four, a 16-bar blues, four sets of four, a 32-bar AABA tune is four sets of eight, which, you know, each eight is two sets of four. Like, multiples of four are very, very common. So hearing a phrase that's five bars long, which is just a kind of an odd number for a phrase to be is something that our ears aren't totally used to in general. And that's especially true in this song because the song already had those four four-bar phrases. So we're kind of already kind of conditioned to be hearing uh, these phrases that are four bars long. The result of that is that it gives the verse a sort of a twisting feeling because there's this extra measure in every phrase and it makes it feel like it's kind of serpentine and it's moving in an unexpected way. It feels very fluid and uh, kind of like water flowing over the music. And I think that that is something that I've never noticed that until I learned this song, that there are five bar phrases in the verse. And I think it just gives us this subconscious sense of a song that's moving a little more like water, that's moving in a more fluid way. That's really cool. It's one of those subtle things that you don't notice until you notice it, but you kind of noticed it anyway. There used to be a gray tower alone on the sea. Side of me, love 
it's diffuse in this distinct way. It sort of spills over onto itself. Each phrase goes on a little longer than you were expecting. I think that that's really neat and something, like I said, that I'd never noticed until I learned this song. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about is the melody. Um, I think that the melody of this song is actually kind of an underrated part of what makes it so good. Uh, the layered melodies and the harmonies and, you know, all of the counterpoint and stuff, like that's a big part of the sound and, and actually the kind of old-fashioned Renaissance Fair vibe I think is another big part of the appeal. But the melody itself does a few really remarkable and interesting things harmonically that I really dig. It's mostly to do with the way that Seal will go up and jump to these stinger notes that are interesting harmonies that, uh, that you know, you wouldn't expect in a melody that so far has been moving in a kind of vanilla way. It's been moving very through very safe um, chord tones. Suddenly he brings out these little points of light uh, in his verse melody that are unexpected and, and gorgeous. So in particular, it's those two high notes that he sort of suspends up above the melody. It's unusual. Um, I, I think that going up and going, you on a note like that, the way he goes to the major seventh, it's a it's a really neat sound and not the most uh, safe note, or at least the note that's the most inside of the harmony. You so I mentioned that's the major seventh. That means that that is the seventh note in the major scale, which is a kind of a dissonant interval. If you remember from our episode way back about ABBA's Dancing Queen, I talked quite a bit about major seventh chords and how that adds a lushness to, to the, any given sound because, you know, a major triad is just the one, three, and the five. It's just sort of a basic major chord. But if you add the major seventh to it, that just richens things up. Um, making a melody do that, you know, jump up to the root and then down to the major seventh in that way that really sits there on the major seventh it brings a dissonance into things that uh, is is beautiful and sort of unusual. You know, you can imagine a version of the melody where he just stays up there on the G. You became... And like, all right, that sounds fine, but it's, it's not anywhere near as interesting as... You became... Like, I really, I really dig that major seventh. You became... He continues to develop those sorts of ideas throughout the song, but for now, one last thing that I like is uh, what the bass is playing. Um, there's just this cool little descending bass line that happens the one place that the harmony changes. You know, this is going between three chords, sort of G, E flat, F to G, but then at one point it goes up to B flat, and the bass does this really cool um, descending bass line where he just walks down the scale back to G. Right here. A drug high enough. I dig that line. It just it adds a nice little bit of motion to a pretty floaty verse. Um, suddenly the bass just kind of moves you through that one different chord. And I think that's pretty cool. And then, of course, there's something also cool about the way that they end the phrase, this did you know that when it snows part. Um, does something a little bit different. It goes to a G major and then to a G minor. And uh, the me Seal's melody is, again, bringing in that major seventh up on top. So the melody kind of sounds like this. So again, it's a place where a lot of it is pretty inside and kind of where your ear expects it to go, but he jumps up to that major seventh and then goes down to the third, and that's like really highlighting the sound of the chord. Like it's a it's a kind of a jumpy melody, right? And um, and just a really nice uh, motif that he sings, you know, first going to the major third, and then going to the minor third when it changes to a minor chord. And I think that line, you know, did you know that when it snows, I mean, it's a, it's a great lyric, too, that really matches up with it. Um, and I always say, like, songs that I really like tend to have more than just one good idea. Um, you know, a lot of catchy pop songs, they have one great idea, like a really good chorus, then the verse is sort of forgettable, but then the chorus comes back, and yeah, and everybody sings along. But the great songs tend to have three or four things that stick in your head. And this is just one of many examples in this song, this part, did you know that when it snows, I mean, that part jumps out at you because suddenly it's dramatically different, and it's going from G major to G minor, and, you know, the melody really accentuates it and moves in a different way, and it's a great idea that stands on its own just at one small point in the song right before the chorus. Alright, it's 
time for this chorus. But uh, unlike a lot of songs with really triumphant choruses, you know, this song, like I just mentioned, has a lot going on in the verse too. You know, I think that the verses and even the bridge are a big part of what make this song great, in addition to this killer chorus, but the chorus is killer. So for starters, let's just go back to that idea of thump and pop and sizzle. And if you remember, the thump and the sizzle were in on the verse, but the pop was not. And if you were listening there, you probably heard the snare drum, the pop, just come roaring in right before the chorus to raise the energy level and change the groove. So the drummer is mixing it up a little bit more. The snare is in. We've got those nice toms in the fill. And that kind of ups the level of the energy. And then also the backup vocals are kind of doing a more traditional backup role here. And CeeLo is just sort of harmonizing with himself throughout the chorus. So when they return to the chorus, he adds a bit more on it and um, definitely adds a bit more on the next verse. So let's keep moving. Um, in between this chorus and then the second verse, there's another interlude that kind of repeats the intro, but they change the instrumentation up. It's pretty cool. See if you can listen to it and pick out which new instruments are in and which parts they're playing. So pretty different, actually. He's The vocal parts are all the same, but over in the left channel, you've got an electric guitar playing a very tasty rendition of that melody. And then over on the right, you have that Celtic harp, or what I'm kind of guessing is a Celtic harp playing. And actually, it's easy to miss this, but underneath, the bass player has stayed in and is playing that, uh, you know, that same part, but down an octave, down in the bass clef. And uh, that adds a nice amount of body to the whole thing. And those are actually the last solo instruments that you'll really hear. The electric guitar is sort of the last texture that's introduced, and they rearrange the you know, with the oboe and the Celtic harp and the guitar and the vocals, and they put them in different arrangements throughout the rest of the song, but those are the main elements. So listen to that interlude after the first chorus again, and just try to hear all of those things. The guitar on the left, harp on the right, bass on the bottom, and vocals in the middle. Okay, so now it's time for the second verse, and Seal does something interesting here. He sings a whole second part, like a second lead line that runs along with and sometimes right up against the main melody part, and they weave in and out of one another in a really cool way. Listen to the first phrase here, and just listen for that. There are two seals now singing. There is so much a man can tell you, so much he can say. So I think that is so cool. I think that's some really good vocal arranging because what they're doing is they're they're being very clever about when the two vocal parts come together and when they diverge. So let's call them part one and part two. Part one is kind of the main vocal line that Seal begins with. Part two comes in just a little bit later and just a little bit higher and is typically in a higher, slightly higher register than part one. And what they'll do is part one and part two start kind of in different places and then they'll come together. They'll sing totally in unison for one line. Then part one will kind of go lower while part two maintains the higher note, then they'll come back together, and there's this feeling of unfocusing and refocusing of these two lines as they sort of weave in and out of one another. And then at the very end of that phrase, when he sings, baby, they kind of hit it together, and it's this total unison, which is really, really powerful. Um, It's really well done, and I don't know whether he just organically threw this together in the studio, because it has a very kind of flowing, organic quality to it, whether they wrote it out, I don't really know, but um, it works super well. All right, so let's go a phrase at a time. There are four phrases in the verse. Let's look at each one of them because they're really cool. And if you can tease out the two different parts, it makes uh, listening to this a lot more fun. And also, remember, we're doing the phrases on the verse, which are five-bar phrases. And that's, again, that kind of interestingly elongated phrase. The choruses are four-bar phrases. I didn't point this out when we were listening to it, but they are just more traditional four-bar phrases, which, again, just is kind of a nice contrast to the verse and makes the verse feel uh, distinct from the chorus in another way. Okay, so here's the first phrase from the second verse. There is 
Okay, so remember, we're calling these part one and part two, and it's mixed in a way that makes it pretty easy to tell them apart. Uh, part one is much closer, you know, there's less reverb on it, it's not in the distance, and that's the main melody line. Part two is farther in the distance, it's mixed farther back, and that's more where Seal is kind of, uh, it almost sounds like he's ad-libbing some lines and adding these, you know, harmonies on top of things. So part one just sings a regular melody like this. And part two comes in uh, very quickly after part one with a nice suspended note up above it. And then he kind of does this like, whoa, whoa, like behind it that sounds ad-libbed. So listen back and listen for that. There is so much a man can tell you, so much he can say. So with the two parts established there, then they do something very cool. They go to the exact same place that you, that major seventh, but part two sticks up there on the F sharp while part one falls away and sings the next part of the line, which creates this really, really cool sound that I think is actually, to me at least, one of the most distinctive and defining sounds of this song is this one, um, this one intersection between these two vocal parts. You remain my power, my pleasure, my pain. And so that phrase, that phrase kind of contains the whole thing. It's almost this entire uh, two-part vocal theory uh, in a nutshell, because it starts with them together on that you, then they diverge and part one goes down, then they actually come together and then part two goes underneath part one and it kind of goes into this harmony and then they come together super strong. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So of course, first there's the major seventh thing that I already talked about. And then on My Power, My Pleasure, My Pain, uh, part one goes up above, they start together, and then part two dips down below and does some harmony. Listen to that. My power, my pleasure, my pain. Man, that's cool. So that's an example of contrary motion, something we haven't talked about in a little while on this show, but contrary motion is always a cool thing in writing, and it's where two melodies or a bass line and a melody, just two different um, lines of musical information are moving in opposite directions. And here, part one and part two kind of pass in the night. They start in the same place, and then they move in completely opposite directions. Part one is moving up in the melody that we're already familiar with. Sounds like this. So part two starts in the same place on the C, but instead of moving up, it moves down. Put them together and you get a line that starts unison and just sounds like one note and then splits and goes in opposite directions. My power, my pleasure, my pain. It's so symmetrical that the two lines actually both end on G's one octave apart. And after they've kind of come back together at the very end of the phrase, they then belt out that next baby line um, together, which makes it sound doubly strong. So, you know, like I said, that one phrase, it kind of contains uh, each ingredient of the whole thing. You know, the two parts starting together, the first part falling away as the second part holds that um, high major seventh. And then they come together and then move apart in opposite directions using contrary motion, ending in a unison. And then they belt out the final word together in total unison, adding a surprising amount of power to the vocal part. It's really cool. Listen to that whole phrase now and pay attention for all of that. My power, my pleasure, my pain, baby. Very cool. So they keep it up through the rest of the verse. Um, similar kind of an idea with uh, voice one, you know, part one kind of in the front, part two riffing and harmonizing and holding notes and and just sort of uh, playing the part of the ornamenter in the background. Won't you tell me is that so as they go into the second chorus, you can hear the strings are more involved. The arrangement is a little bit more exciting. And there's just one thing on the second chorus that I really like. It's another little background uh, background vocal accent that I think is another oddly defining sound of this song. I always hear it. I think it's kind of interesting to look at what people sing when they sing a song at karaoke. And I think that when someone does this at karaoke, everybody in the room who's kind of singing along almost always sings this backup part too. Uh, this is what I'm talking about. Stranger. 
it's that backup part. It's the echo that comes in. He goes, yeah, yeah. There's that second part in the back there um, that rings out. And it's just, uh, it's really cool. And another example of this sort of sort of pinging suspended backup vocal part that stands out. They don't do that on the first chorus, but they do it on the second chorus. And again, just a little thing that somehow manages to have more importance to the overall recording than you would think, uh, given that it's just two notes sung by a backup vocal track. So after this second chorus, it's time for another interlude. This is a longer interlude that exists as a sort of a pre-bridge. It's like a setup to the bridge. And all of those solo instruments are in. The oboe is over on the right, the electric guitar and the piano are over on the left. Everything really but the vocals. And they go twice as long, and then they set up the big and elaborate bridge to the song. We'll get to the bridge momentarily. Don't worry. It's sort of the last thing we need to take apart. But uh, one thing that I think is interesting about that little interlude is the length of it. Uh, This is not a super short song. You know, it's four and a half minutes long, which is pretty long for a pop song. You know, it's maybe a minute longer than you might think. And you get that extra minute by letting sections like this go on this long. I think this is kind of an indulgent song in a lot of ways, and that's part of what people like about it. You know, pop songs in general tend to be more like three minutes long, three minutes and 20 seconds long, sort of a around the three minute mark. Just as a totally, you know, random example, I pulled up Taylor Swift's 2019, her recent one, Lover. Almost every single song on that album is like three minutes, 20 seconds long, right around there. So for a song to be four minutes and 30 seconds long, you know, that's a whole extra minute. And the reason that it's an extra minute long is because Seal did stuff like let this interlude section play out so long and let the oboe really kind of, you know, have a moment to really kind of be an oboe solo uh, to build you into the bridge, which is not the kind of thing that you would hear on every song, and it makes Kiss from a Rose sort of different. You know, you can't rush this stuff. It needs to breathe, and then it needs to build. It's time for the bridge, which is where the whole concept of vocal counterpoint and vocal layering reaches its apotheosis. There's a whole lot of vocal stuff going on, a whole flock of seals coming at you, and it is quite something. actually kind of have a feeling that because we've been doing so much close listening to Seal's singing and his counter melodies and vocal harmonies, that you pretty much heard everything that was going on there. It's not that hard to pick out everything that's going on, especially once you've kind of attuned yourself to the layers of the song. There's a couple new things going on. I think over on the right channel, that might be a harpsichord. They finally went full harpsichord on it, and there's a harpsichord in. The strings are doing some really nice little, you know, stabs that are that are coming in as uh, nice accents to what's going on. But generally, it's just a whole bunch of Seal's singing a whole bunch of really nice parts in counterpoint and in harmony with one another. Listen one more time and just try to take it all in. bridge is arguably the climax of the song, but there is time for one more verse, which is kind of a reprise of the second verse, with one really, really cool little extra thing that they add that is another one of my favorite small touches in this song. It comes after Seal builds it back up with that line, one more time, my power, my pleasure, my pain, and they come out of it just beautifully. My power, my pleasure, my pain. Oh man, that is so good. So that's the same place where if you remember the first time through that verse in that same place, the two uh, vocal parts, part one and part two, move apart from each other and then they do that baby together. And here they don't sing that. He just sings my power, my pleasure, my pain and then drops out and everything drops out except for the kick drum, that low thump and you get this little heartbeat right before a cluster chord in the piano and the strings... 
brings the band back in. To me, I like a grown addiction that I can't deny. Now, won't you tell me, is that healthy, baby? Man, talk about less is more. That's definitely an example of the way that rather than becoming more powerful and louder and thicker, you can pull everything away. And it's a very arresting effect, not despite the fact that it's so quiet, but because so much has fallen away and suddenly there's so much contrast with how big and powerful it was just a moment before. My power, my pleasure, my pain. Great stuff. So there's one more chorus. The chorus is pretty much the same deal. I mean, you know, we've we've been here at this point. This song, like I said, is sort of indulgent in that it just keeps going and giving you more and more of it, which is great because it's a good song and people want more of it. The strings are in so powerfully. The backup vocals are doing their thing. Everything has kind of reached its peak. And then they bring things out kind of the way that they brought things in. The guitar and the oboe, the vocals and that harp. Now that your rose is in bloom, and of course, a light hits the gloom. Seal himself on the I think that in listening to this song and going as deeply as we've gone, it's no longer a mystery why people still sing this song, why it's been covered so many times, why it's kind of this pop culture artifact that has endured for 25 years. It's a great song with a lot of cool things going on in the recording that not very many songs have. It's lush and indulgent and sort of timeless. It has a lot of almost goofy elements that still somehow work. It features a vocalist singing beautifully with vocal arrangements that remain unusual. It was a great song 25 years ago. It's a great song today. and it will remain great many more than 25 years in the future. That'll do it for my analysis of Seal's Kiss from a Rose, a widely requested song that was very fun to get inside and pick apart. I hope you liked this episode. I had a great time making it. If you did like it, I hope you'll spread the word. Tell someone you know who might like the show. Leave me a review on the Apple Podcast app. And as always, consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. You can find links for all of that stuff along with a newsletter, playlists, and more in the show notes. This episode's outro soloist is the one and only bassist, Sam Howard. Sam and I went to music school together and we're good buddies. He lived in Portland for a while and now lives in Nashville, Tennessee. I caught him in town when he was on tour with an amazing guitarist singer named Molly Tuttle. Sam played the solo section and then played all the way through to the end. So enjoy Sam's solo and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. 